We start in 1994. Two women were murdered at two abortion clinics in Brookline, Massachusetts. Five people were injured. The killer was caught, found guilty, sentenced. Justice was done. And then something happened that might have seemed impossible before those terrible crimes. Leaders on both sides of the abortion debate met together for a series of secret talks. We hear from them now. We definitely were told that we were not to go in to try to change the minds of the other side. And for myself, it was extremely difficult for me to do that because I wanted to change their minds. I would trust my life to any one of the women. I felt like we had each other's backs. We were respectful of each other's position. And we certainly became very fond of each other. This is Let's Find Common Ground. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Ashley Miltite. Right after the murders at the clinics, both sides of the fierce and furious debate over abortion were shocked. Clinic doctors and workers felt their lives were endangered. And the leaders of the anti-abortion movement spoke out against that terrible violence. We speak here with the Reverend Ann Fowler, an Episcopal priest who served on the board of directors for the Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts. And lawyer Fran Hogan. She's been president of Women Affirming Life. They're among the women profiled in the new documentary, The Abortion Talks. You know, Richard, it took years for the women to go public and explain what they'd been discussing and why they met. The first mention came in an opinion article in the Boston Globe. The headline was Talking with the Enemy. And in our interview with Fran and Anne, we also learn about what was and wasn't achieved in their many hours of conversations and why these discussions still have a lot of relevance to the abortion debate today. So both of you have come a really long way over the years. Can you tell me first, starting with you, Anne, how... And why did your meetings begin? They began after the clinic killings in Brookline in 1994, when two Planned Parenthood staffers were killed in two different clinics. After that happened, then Cardinal Law and then Governor Weld asked for a lowering of the rhetoric, a de-escalation of the provocative and sometimes rather violent rhetoric that was happening in the public sphere around this issue of abortion. And the Public Conversations Project, which is a nonprofit in Watertown, Massachusetts, had been doing work with dialogues. I'd been involved in a couple of shorter dialogues with them. Laura Chasen and Susan Podziba, who are our facilitators, interviewed a number of leaders in both sides of the movement and selected six of us. And that's how we got there. And Fran, you have your own version. (laughs) Well, it's pretty much the same. We, um, on both sides, it was leaders of the two different movements, so to speak. And at the time I was um, serving in a leadership position as as the other two women on the pro-life side were. And the day of the shootings, I actually knew the person who did the shooting. So I had been involved in advising 
the uh, state police who the shooter was at the time. And after that, we got these calls about the lowering of the rhetoric. Ian had participated in earlier shorter dialogues. They had asked me to do that, and I would not participate in those shorter dialogues and didn't want to participate in this one either. It was only through a lot of talking with people and thinking about it that I decided to go ahead and participate with the hope that the rhetoric could be lowered and any violence on any side could be lowered. As these conversations began, were both of you scared? I was not scared. I felt obligated and called as as part of my ministry to participate. Honestly, as I I think back about what what my reaction was and what my mood was going into the first meeting, it was more irritation than anything else. Why do we have to keep doing this? I was not scared physically. I was scared that people might think that I, I was caving on my position on the issue. And I was afraid that that would hurt my movement, my side of the movement, so to speak. And that's part of the reason that at least I think among pro-lifers, we wanted this to be completely confidential. We didn't know what damage it might do to people on the front lines. So I wasn't physically scared, but I was nervous about the impact this might have. Well, yeah, I mean, these talks, certainly initially, maybe throughout, what they were top secret, right? And you met in the basement of a house somewhere in the Boston area. And Fran, I think at one point, your secretary had some suspicions about what, what might be going on. <laughs> She didn't know where I was going because we weren't telling people where we were going. And I think she thought I was having an affair or something. It was crazy because we really, really could only tell spouses or people that we were living with. And that was it. And that was very important. I don't think without that, I don't know, cocoon, we would have been able to achieve what we did achieve. It had to be confidential. Fran and Anne, did you have preconceptions about the other side? Uh, and, And if you did, could you tell us what they were as opposed to how you feel now? I didn't expect them to be smart, you know? And they t- <laughs> they turned out to be really smart, <laughs> which was and just added to my irritation about the whole thing because... <laughs> Because we were we were well matched. We were six people who were well matched, and I think the choice to engage leaders was not exactly political, but it was a public policy kind of decision. I think on the part of public conversations, it was good for them to choose leaders because we all had experience with leadership in tough situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably did have some preconceived notions. Nikki Nichols Gamble, whom I like very much, was really an icon of the pro-choice movement, I think really known throughout the country for her leadership. Gamble was the president of Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts at the time. And before I met her, I didn't like her because of the position she had. I did not know Anne before we met. I did not. I was not familiar with Anne at all. We had appeared on many different interview shows or different events where they would have people from one side and the other side, but we really never clicked together 
we, we sort of knew each other, but didn't really talk to each other. It was that kind of a relationship, as opposed to today, where we very much enjoy the few times we have to get together and to share a meal and to share updates on family and so forth. It, it's a relationship now. It never was before. Can I just dig in quickly into something you, uh, to what you said, Anne, when you said laughingly, I, re- I didn't expect them to be smart. Why not? Well, because I think my my main encounters with, I'm supposed to say pro-life people, was in the context of a protest where people were, seemed to me irrational and kind of cult-like and not people that I would expect to be able to engage the way that our friends on the pro-life side turned out to be able to do. Was that disconcerting, uh, that sense that you'd got them wrong, or was it refreshing that, oh gosh, I'm, we're across the table from people who are smart as opposed to what I thought they were? Well, it certainly made things a lot more interesting, um, <laughs> in a good way, I think. I wouldn't say refreshing. I think it, it took us a real while to get used to each other. I would say it could have took a good eight or ten meetings before we kind of hit our stride. How long were these meetings, usually? Oh, endless. <laughs> they were supposed to be two hours, and they rarely ended on time. I'm kind of a watch witch, so I would always say it's 8 o'clock. i to go home now. Yeah, they, they were long, and they were emotional, and you'd be wrung out at the end of them, I think, especially in the beginning when we learned how to what we needed to call each other and what words we could use and not use in order to further the conversation. If we didn't have those facilitators, it would never have happened, I don't think. Absolutely. I said often that this was, I realized this was the the closest I was ever come to understanding what it was like to be in the early church, where then people were gathered together in a basement room trying to decide as Jews and Christians or followers of the new Jesus movement, if they could be together. If Jews who wanted to convert could be admitted into the Jesus movement, and they were held together by liturgy, the the service, and by food, by breaking bread together. And that's what we were doing. We were in a basement room. We were secret. We were trying to figure out if we could stay together and we were eating meals together. And what held the people together in the first century was their liturgy. What held us together was those facilitators. Fran is right. We could never have done it without them. I want to know some of what you actually talked about. I mean, your talks lasted unexpectedly a long time. They went on way beyond four or five meetings. They went on for several years, especially at the beginning. How were you even talking and what were you talking about? Well, at the very beginning, we had to come up with a vocabulary that we could use so that we could actually talk. And that took a long time. We would put up. Yeah, it really did. We we put on big sheets on the wall. We can't use what are the hot button terms that we ought not use, and an awful lot of our vocabulary was stolen from us. 
So we had to learn how to speak about these issues in words that were not our normal way of speaking. We're all advocates for our positions and it was hard to put those words away and, and talk in a different way. Clearly the topic was not just abortion, but it was how to lower the rhetoric so that violence no longer happens within the movement. And we had a big discussion, I remember, about the pro-choice people would speak of the violence that happened, you know, when the murders occurred and the and the shootings occurred. And we totally agreed with that. That was horrible violence. But from the pro-life perspective at the beginning, we talked about what we considered the violence done in the act of abortion. So that would be one of the things in the very beginning that we talked about. But we went on to everything you can possibly imagine from one end of life to the other. Who would you throw overboard in a lifeboat? I, I don't know if you remember that conversation. It was everything you can imagine, uh, partial birth, abortion, we tried very hard to figure out some activity maybe we could do together unrelated to abortion. We couldn't do that. The only thing we ever came up with was the article that we wrote for The Globe. That was the best thing we could have come up with. I mean, we talk about like planting a tree or, you know, doing some public service or something like that. But but the best thing that we came up with was the best thing, which was to make, and we spent a long time deciding whether we could, as we kept putting, taking it out of the room. We spent a long time, and and the I, I think it's fair to say that the pro-life people were much more trepidatious about taking it out of the room. When you say taking it out of the room, you mean that as a result of your conversations, you took it out of the room and went public with this big article in in the Boston Globe, which uh, was by far and away the largest newspaper in the region. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And as a result of that, we got invited to I can't even imagine how many places to speak from the Neiman Foundation at Harvard to the Rhinebeck up in New York. And we were everywhere <laughs> the day that, yeah, it was, it was a little crazy. The day that we went with this, we figured no one would show up. They were going to have a press conference. No one was more shocked than we were. The room was full of media. We had no idea of the impact this would have. And from a pro-life perspective, purely from my perspective, it was the best thing because we were heard in places we never had access to before. We would never be invited to many of these places. Now, was it scary going to places, Ian will know this, where everybody in the room feels differently than you do? Yes, it was. But I felt it was a real opportunity to present a message that they just never heard before. So it was a great thing, I think. But it's ancient history now. It's a long time ago. But it does relate to what's going on today, which we're going to get to a little bit later in the conversation. But just to quickly go back to your developing relationships with each other over the, over the years, because by the time that Boston Globe piece came out, it was early 2001. W- right. Would you consider yourself friends by that point, the six of you? I would. Would you, Ian? Well, it depends what you mean by friends. I think we were, I think we were friendly acquaintances fairly close acquaintances. Um, there are some elements of, of real friendship that I, I have to say for myself were lacking. But I think most important, we learned to trust one another. And to this day, I would trust my life to any one of the women. I felt like we had each other's backs. We were respectful of, of each other's position in a lot of ways. We, we were respectful of each other. And 
we certainly became very fond of each other. And we had a lot of laughs and we went through a lot of different people's life experiences, death of spouses, death of siblings, birth of grandchildren. And those experiences forge deep relationships. That that sounds great, but was there a, a moment, or were there moments when somebody threatened to get up and walk out, or there was a, a moment when you thought, oh gosh, this whole thing's just breaking apart, or we're going to have a yelling match here? I don't think anybody ever threatened to walk out that I can recall. One of the things that they taught us to do, and it was a very important lesson for me, was to listen to what the person is saying not preparing your response to what the person is saying and then saying back to them because half the time what you thought they said they didn't really say. And that was one of the gifts of these um, facilitators who taught us how to really listen and respond to what was actually said. I think that was a very good tool in their toolbox. Well, certainly that was true. I had had trouble, I think, really hearing the other point of view. And I, I think... I want to be sure to say this. I think it was one of the great opportunities of my life because we don't have many opportunities to sit with people with whom we disagree and talk almost exclusively about the very thing that we disagree about. And that is a gift that I wish I knew how to scale up. In the podcast that we've done, on Let's Find Common Ground, we've had a number of guests who've said that, that if we're speaking or in a dialogue with somebody who we disagree with, we need to listen to what they say before we really prepare a response in our, in our minds. And so I think that's, that's a very interesting point. But did either of you go into these discussions at any time wishing to change the minds of the other side? Well, we definitely were told that we were not to go in to try to change the minds of the other side. And for myself, it was extremely difficult for me to do that because I wanted to change their minds, knowing that wasn't going to happen. But I did want to change their minds. But I think the ground rules made it clear we were not supposed to be trying to do that. Once you, once you came to respect them, and, and even like them, did you wish even more fervently that you could change their minds because you thought, oh, these are, these are good people? I did. I never gave up that hope. Never, ever, never, ever. But one thing that Ian said, we talked about respecting the persons, each other. I did respect all the people involved, but we had a big discussion one time about the fact that I did not respect their position. I respected them as, you know, having dignity as human persons, but I did not respect their position. And there was a, a fairly um, hot discussion about that because they felt differently, or at least my recollection is that they felt differently. But I'd never changed my mind on that. I remember that. So, yeah. Can you respect a person if you don't respect her position? I think was what we, you know, we struggled with. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But that's that's where I came down, you know, yeah. We're speaking with Anne Fowler, who's pro-choice, and Fran Hogan, who's pro-life. This is Let's Find Common Ground. I'm Ashley. I'm Richard. 
If you're interested in learning more about the conversations that Fran and Anne were part of, we recommend a new documentary. The film is called The Abortion Talks. You can learn more about it at their website, abortiontalks.com. As both women made clear in their conversations with us, they had facilitators who helped them work out who would be involved in the discussions, how long they'd go on, and also some of the things that could and could not be mentioned. The nonprofit group Essential Partners played a crucial role. Their website, whatisessential.org, explains more about how they partner with civic, civil, and religious groups to restore trust and understanding. And again, the website for the Abortion Talks documentary is abortiontalks.com. Now back to our interview. And how did it feel as a member of the clergy working with the pro-life women, given that I'm assuming they claimed moral authority. You're a member of the clergy. That I mean, where does that leave you? I felt it left me in a particular hot spot. Um, they always seemed a little skeptical <laughs> about, you know, this this woman is a is a minister. She's an Episcopal priest, and she believes what she believes. And I asked them once, quite far along, if they thought I was a moral person. And they could not answer that question. And that was painful after everything that we'd been through together. Well, just a couple of comments on that. One is that I think it's important, at least from my perspective, the three of us were Catholic on the pro-life side, but I was not coming from a faith perspective. So in terms of moral authority, I never thought of it that way. It was just how I thought um, in a secular, reasoned way. But second of all, if my brother asked me if I thought he were a moral person. I wouldn't answer that either, Anne. I can't judge another person's morality. In my mind, each person has to judge his or her own morality. And that would be why I wouldn't comment on that. I, I don't know the fullness of any other person's life. Politically, we live in very heated times, perhaps more now than when you first came together. And so often the debate over abortion is framed by the media that, that, as I know, having been a reporter for a long time, loves conflict and clashes. And highlighting the worst about the other side can also be a good way for the two movements to raise funds and rev up their supporters. So what's wrong with the way the debate over abortion is currently being framed? Well, it happens. I went to the Maine State House on Monday to support some bills that our governor has proposed on expanding access to abortion and re removing certain restrictions that have been on the books for a long time. And there were 65 of us that had signed up to testify in support of these bills and 650 who had signed up in opposition. And they had been bussed in from all over. I mean, they were not all Mainers. And I was waiting in line in this rainy, cold day to go through security. And a, a man sort of ran down the hill where we were waiting and said, call them baby killers. That's what they are. They're baby killers. And I had a moment of real panic, like I've, I've rarely ever had. 
because he sounded like somebody who could kill somebody. He would kill a baby killer. And then I realized, well, if he, he started shooting, he would shoot all the, the pro-lifers who are outnumbering me 100 to 1. So I stopped worrying about it. But you know, that's not the way to go. That's something that should be reined in by anybody who cares about making progress in finding common ground. Fran, what do you think? Well, I think that it happens both ways. We were having a march here on the Boston Common and we got called terrible names by pro-choice people, but I don't think they were representative of the entire movement. Um, I would reject what happened to Ian completely. It's antithetical to everything that we've tried to do. Um, and I think it's probably true on both sides. There was an inability to have these conversations that we had to try to see what could be done. It turns out there's not much we can do on the issue together because it's just there is no common ground on the issue without a doubt. But um, yelling and screaming is not furthering any conversation at all. As a pro-life person, I've worked toward what they call incremental legislation without a complete ban, trying to slowly, Ian would, I don't think would agree with this, but slowly put on restrictions until we wound up with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But that's done not by yelling and screaming. I don't think Operation Rescue did us any favors, and I don't think calling people names does us any favors. And I think as a result of these conversations, as I mentioned before, we were able to get to places which probably only heard the people screaming baby killers and which finally heard people who could articulate the position, I think, in a more positive and, you know, thoughtful way. Fran, you just mentioned the sort of the lack of common ground on this issue. So those years that you were talking together, if you didn't find common ground, what did you find? We did not find common ground on the abortion issue whatsoever. <laughs> she wants to make sure you know that. <laughs> make sure, right, exactly. But, but we did find um, the beauty and the dignity of all human life, even human life with which we profoundly disagree, and the importance to respect that human life as much as I respect the life of the unborn child or the person at the other end of life. In my mind, all those people have to be respected the same way. And because a person has a position I don't agree with doesn't mean I don't respect and, uh, and honor that person as a human being. Your conversations began in the 90s. Would it be even more difficult to start a chat around a subject as, as charged as this today than was the case when, when you began? Did you call it a chat? <laughs> 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 a 20-year chat. chat. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it would be the same. I mean, I would hope that people are as motivated today as they were 20 years ago to try to at least talk to one another. I mean, people of good faith ought to be as eager to do that as they were, as we were 20 years ago. And people ought to be very interested in facilitating such chats. I agree with Ian on this. I think that, that it could be done. There are so many more issues that are dividing people today, even than 20 years ago. I mean, I have a brother who has a daughter who raises money for Planned Parenthood and one that's in the Tea Party. Same family. 
So, you know, when you're having dinner with people or talking with friends or family, often you disagree, not just on this issue, but on a million other issues. And, you know, the TV and the media hasn't helped one single bit, in my view. They, I think they like to rev it up to make it more exciting and more volatile or something. You know, that's, that was my experience with the media. Throughout the interview, both of you have talked about the vital role played by the facilitators of your discussions, your conversations, not your chats. <laughs> I, I'm, I stand corrected. <laughs> what kind of role did they play? And do you think that when it comes to two sides on a very difficult issue coming together, that they need a facilitator? They need someone to, to maybe help them with the ground rules of the conversations? I certainly would say so. I would not embark on this kind of project without the reassurance that somebody, if they were a container for us. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, and that's the problem with having these conversations, because if you don't have anybody to facilitate them, you don't know how they're going to occur. But I do agree, it would never, could never have happened. Because they controlled us. <laughs> no, they did. I mean, they told us if we got out of line, they would bring us back in and so forth. And um, they allowed it to go along very slowly. It was a long time till we got to talk about real substance. I want to follow up on, on Richard's question. You've both said the conversations that you held years ago could be held now. But we do live in an incredibly polarized time. Could another group from different sides of an issue meet today the same way you did? I think they could. And you got to remember, we're in the middle of two murders and five shootings. It was extremely volatile at the time. And I do think that today it could be done. Um, you know, if I were in charge of the U.S. Congress, I would bring in a facilitator and try and have these guys talk to each other. Seriously, let them listen to what the other person is saying. They're missing that at that level. And even on the different TV channels, whether it's right wing or left wing, there's re no real genuine discussion about the content of different issues. Um. I think the more the media can resist, if it bleeds, it leads kind of journalism and, and have more spots and more discussions like you're providing, examples of how we can have a conversation successfully without expecting to change other people's minds, but hoping to learn to understand where they are coming from, that would be a great service to the country. And I know people listen to the media that supports what they already think, but there are some breakthrough situations, and I just think the more encouragement that can be given to people of good faith trying to understand one another, I would hope that would have some effect. These, on the whole, were civil, dignified conversations that you had with the help of your facilitators. What would you say you gained from them personally? For myself, I gained the opportunity to understand why I believe what I believe at a very deep level. When one speaks with people with whom one agrees, 
you tend not to even examine your belief system. And I think what happened for me, at least, is I dug very, very deeply to understand what I believed and to understand the difference between what I might believe as a Catholic as opposed to what I might believe as a lawyer in a secular society, what was possible. So in that sense, I found it extremely an enriching experience. Well, I part of what I gained, I gained very early on, which was this understanding about how I, I was getting thrown back to first century Christianity, the development of Christianity, and I realize I live in a kind of bubble where I, I don't have to spend a lot of time uh, with people that I that I don't agree with. I don't have to listen to them. My family and I are pretty much on the same page. My friends and I are. So learning that I could love advisedly, I use the word advisedly, I'm advising myself that I love Fran and Madeline and Barbara. Um, I don't always like them. I certainly don't believe them, <laughs> but I love them. You hear it, Fran? I love you. I heard you, Ian, loud yeah, and clear. <laughs> and, and as they say, I love okay. you too. <laughs> Fran Hogan and Anne Fowler. That's our show. Let's Find Common Ground is a production of Common Ground Committee. We have many Common Ground podcast conversations and also other events at our website. Go to commongroundcommittee.org. I'm Ashley Miltite. I'm Richard Davies. You know, we always say this, Ashley, and we mean it. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.